0: Hello, and welcome to episode number 143 of A Mike on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, Kentaro, for his support and all my other Patreon subscribers for their continued support. This podcast would struggle to continue without them and my Patreon page has become a great place to learn about and to chat about all aspects of conducting. There'll be more about my Patreon page later on in this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with a British conductor, who, after studying the bassoon in Germany, ended up being a professional player in Berlin for 10 years. In 2012, she decided to move towards conducting, and now has a very successful guest conducting career all across the globe. It's a great pleasure to welcome Katherine larson Maguire. Catherine, it is lovely to meet you today for the first time via the wonder that is Zoom. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thanks. Lovely to
0: meet you too. Good. We're both sitting in our attic rooms, my study here in Birmingham, and you're at home in Berlin. Um, But I know you're not from Berlin and your accent gives it away that you're not German. Uh, You're from um, the UK. And so I always go back to the beginning. Um, musical family, musical parents, how did music come into your life? What were your first instruments? How did it all start?
1: Yeah, I, it's, um, well, I was born in Manchester, um, and then my parents moved around a little bit, but I grew up mainly in Northumberland, just outside Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And um, parents, not musical, um, didn't particularly listen to much music at home either. I have really no idea where it started. I played the recorder at school like everyone else did, in those days at least. And um and then for some reason my mum had a violin, I think which she tried to play at some stage in her life, um, had a violin at home, um, which I must have been interested in. And then when I was seven, I had a violin lesson with the local violin teacher who actually was the village um teacher of every instrument. But oh, wow. I'm not sure if it, I'm not sure if it was because he played every instrument. <laughs> um less, I'm not sure. Um, but um yeah, and that was in, in Ponteland, just outside uh Newcastle. And um yeah, I had violin lessons for, for quite some time without really it being anything particularly uh uh you know, um earth shattering. Um mm-hmm. and then about uh when I was probably about 10 or 11 i was invited to play in the county string orchestra and as so many people say of course when you start playing with other people other people of your age and you realize you can get a day of school um mm. and it's actually quite fun then um then it suddenly started to make sense and um that's that's what i really really um enjoyed at first and yeah, and I was I actually wanted to be a violinist um, rather than a bassoonist, and uh, you know I got to the stage of going to the Northumberland Schools Symphony Orchestra, which I was actually the leader of. Wow! Um, just uh, it's not really a wow. Um, have, <laughs> <laughs> I think you had to have a grade four to get in, so um, I did. I did manage to get to grade eight on the violin, um, and uh, yeah, and just kind of went on it was just a part of my life, not a not a main part, but it was a, certainly a. Um, an interest and um, then I went on a um, and then I actually did actually get into National Children's Orchestra mm. um, when I was 13 so I, and which goes up to age 14 so I was really one of the oldest just for the year and I was on the last desk of second violins and that's not a good place to be because there were 10 desks of second violin so I, wow. I will never ever forget as a conductor I've never forgotten how far away you are from the conductor if you're on the 10th desk of the second violins. And of course, it's not very cool at all to be on the last list of the seconds. Um, and uh, But that was quite fun in its way. And uh, then I actually got to meet some um, other musical young people from the south of England who were, of course, very posh. And they all had famous teachers and I felt a bit inadequate. But um, it was that was certainly an experience. And then for some reason, there was a bassoon hanging around at school. I was in my normal school, uh, comprehensive school in Ponteland and um, nobody wanted to play it. And I said, well, "Let's, I'll give it a go." And um, be honest, it seemed much easier than the violin. <laughs> uh, and I'd stick by that actually. <laughs> um, and um, and then uh, probably because I sort of played at the chord, and it's the same same principle. Um, then I, you know, um, of course, the, even in those days, there was a shortage of, of young bassoonists, not as bad as, as it is now. Mm. um but so i got into things like a county wind band really quite quickly and then i went on a course um with um uh which was being run by jill and dave johnston i don't know if you've come across them they're the parents of no. guy johnston the challenge. oh yeah i know guy, no guy. Yeah,
0: yeah yeah
1: and magnus johnston it's a very musical family and his parents used to run these courses all around the country and uh they're absolutely fantastic and his mom's a bassoonist and uh, uh, amateur or a, a teacher, um, and his dad's a pretty good clarinetist and a conductor, and um, I went on a course with them, just a chamber music course, and they um, said, oh, you know, you, sh- you should take this bit more seriously, and they actually phoned my parents to say, oh, she could be quite good, you know, um, why don't you get her some proper teaching, nothing against my teachers in Northumberland, but um, they weren't professional musicians, I'd never met a professional musician at this stage, when I was about 15, and um, they said, you know, should um, why don't you suggest that she auditions for Cheetham's? Mm. Which I did, but on the violin at that stage I was you know, the violin the bassoon was just a very uh, peripheral thing, a bit of a joke. Well, mm. it hasn't really changed. But um <laughs> and um so so I auditioned for cheatings and they said, Oh yeah, violin, not really. Um, but then they did all kinds of sort of fun um games, oral tests, clapping exercises, rhythm things, improvisation, which I really enjoyed, and apparently I was um surprisingly good at considering the standard of my violin playing mm. so they said "Did you play anything else said, sort of played the bassoon uh just sort of started or you again so "Well, practice the bassoon but come back and do an addition on the bassoon which i did and then i got in on the bassoon i thought i'd kind of sneak in on the bassoon then change to violin that didn't happen um i sneaked in on the bassoon and stayed on the bassoon because i had uh just uh such a fantastic time actually playing the bassoon and it was the first time I've met professional musicians my teacher was Graham Salvage from the Halle who played the bassoon and that was just a revelation you know I was doing things like um, studies which I'd never done before and I, I started again almost from scratch but I, I only went to for, for six form so I was 16 when I went and um, this was just it was this was a real a real revelation um, and then it was clear to me this is really what I wanted to to do with my life to, to Play the bassoon or do music in some in some way, be in an orchestra, and I was already interested in conducting, and I don't know why. Yeah. I've, I mean, never see, never really seen any conductor. I'd, conductor, I'd occasionally gone to Northern Symphonia concerts, but that was a bit of a luxury um, with my parents or my mum, and um, and I don't think there were many female conductors around in those days anyway. But I can always be remember being being totally fascinated by by conducting. And well,
0: so, I think you're, I think so. you're only the second bassoonist i've spoken to i mean the other one's rather an illustrious name which is sir mark elder yeah he was yeah a bassoonist, of course and, and went through the national systems and played in the national youth orchestra i'm not sure whether he played a stringed instrument as well but but what it means is it puts you in a in a wonderful bracket for conductors of people who are highly skilled in two areas you know, woodwind and strings i mean Often, you know, it's come up on the podcast where I've talked to somebody who studied as a trumpet player and wished they'd taken up some string playing earlier on or whatever else. Because, of course, the lion's share of orchestral conducting and we are dealing with string players a lot of the time. So at least you have a double background, which is great. I mean, I'm sure you still lean on your violin playing skills and knowledge to this day very much.
1: Absolutely, and I'm actually lucky enough to have three friends who even uh, play in a string quartet with me. Um, I play viola actually in the string oh. quartet. But um, you know, every couple of months we get together and play string quartets. And I always say it's just it's the height of civilization. A glass yes. of red wine and some Haydn Beethoven or whatever. Um. It's just, it's just absolutely wonderful, and of course, for orchestras, it depends on the orchestra, but where I started off, with the orchestras I started off with, which are um, amateur orchestras and youth orchestras, of course, it's invaluable to, um, first of all, to be able to show that you know a little bit about what you're talking about, um, but then also to actually know it, um, not mm. just to, to show it. and um, for Boeings and stuff like that. I mean, I always go to a Boeings try and play the stuff myself. And yeah, it's a huge help. So I'm incredibly grateful. I yeah. mean, shame about, the, shame, shame about the piano. But yeah. um, the, the violin and bassoon is actually a really great comp- uh, a combination of instruments. Absolutely.
0: Uh, now I read, I think it was on your own website actually, that you studied music at Cambridge, which means you didn't go to a hot house. You didn't go from Cheatham's to the Royal Northern or or the Royal, you know, Royal Academy yet. But you went and studied music at Cambridge, and I know that they're the those courses and those places, Cambridge, Oxford, are wonderful for conducting. Now, did you do any? Has the C word appeared as an actual thing you were doing by now? Are you conducting yet at, at
1: Cambridge? Yes, absolutely. Yeah soon yeah. as I went um I was right right because you know at Cambridge it's a very academic it was a very academic course there was absolutely mm. no practical you didn't have to do you didn't even have to play an instrument a little bit of piano for sort of keyboard skills but um but um of course everyone just organized stuff and did anything they wanted there was kind of you know it was unsupervised as it were by adults I mean, by grown-ups we were obviously grown ups sort of but didn't really feel like it um and people would just get their friends together and uh, you know, on an orchestral concert and so i wasn't the only one doing that but i certainly joined the trend and yeah already um first year i thought right yeah why don't i just um you know get my whatever college music society together and uh, tell them that i'm a conductor and if you know what if you're prepared to organize it and have a good party afterwards yes so you can get all your friends to play um then um you could just do it and i did and it was uh without i mean it must have been horrifically bad <laughs> um, I can't imagine what it looked like, but um, actually, be fascinated to have seen it. But um, you know, ridiculous things like Beethoven Five and like Four and Vivaldi Gloria. I think was the first piece I ever did um, in a concert. So um, it was. Uh, I, had to, it's, I mean, it's un- unthinkable now um, to to do that. But I must have been, you know, rather foolhardy or just uh, not even known how how difficult it is um yeah so absolutely i was already uh so interested in it i'm doing you know, I, in my last year i also conducted the university music society orchestra the second orchestra comes to mm. and it was known um and which was weekly rehearsals and then other stuff uh, it was you know you could really as long as you had sort of energy um you, and uh prepared to, to take you know to take everything as it came then you could do anything yeah, and that was of yeah. course an amazing
0: experience and were you being mentored or taught by anybody at this time or were you just learning by doing
1: learning um, by doing yeah absolutely learning by doing and I don't know how really um fascinating to see it now but no I I didn't I hadn't had any lessons I wasn't being mentored by anyone I hadn't really even um worked with or even seen any illustrious conductors, famous conductors. In, in my second year at Cambridge, I got into E-C-Y-O, I was, as it was known at that time, European yes. Community Youth Orchestra, um, and that's when I first came into contact with these incredible conductors. The first course was, was with mm. Um and then there were, you know, Bardo and Haitink, and these huge names who were just so inspiring, and of course, what they were doing was so far away from so far away um, from what I was doing. But um, that's uh, you know when I started to uh, have a very distant, but some some kind of direct contact with these incredible conductors conductors who I still uh, absolutely revere now. Yes,
0: absolutely. I mean, they're three massive names, and you know, three gods of the world that you know that we uh, we work in. There must have come a point when you decided. Do you know what? I would like to be a bassoonist uh, because you went on and did a postgraduate uh, postgraduate course. I'm assuming it was a postgrad course at the Royal Academy of Music on bassoon. And then on further to study in Hanover and eventually arriving at the Carrienne Academy. Was there a moment, do you remember, where you thought, now I'm going to put the conducting on the back burner because I love it, but actually the bassoon is the thing I want to do. I want to go and play in orchestras. Because that route, by doing a postgrad of the Royal Academy and eventually ending up at the Karajan Academy in Berlin, shows that you were interested very much in being an orchestral bassoonist, I would say. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Yeah. I, I look back a, a lot and wonder... I don't think there was a conscious moment of a decision that I'm gonna leave conducting now. I think it was um it was just a very kind of well-travelled route that people were doing. Also a lot of friends after Cambridge went to London to a music college. And I you know it was Cambridge was amazing, it was just three amazing years. But it was time to go into the go out into the real world, I think, by that mm. stage, and the real world being London, not particularly the Royal Academy of Music. But um and I really wish that I'd uh, applied to do conducting there, I have to say. Um, but I just thought it was so um, maybe too beyond me, or there was no chance that I'd get a place, or I didn't even entertain the idea, I think. Mm. Um, while at the academy and studying bassoon, um, I, I was still very interested in conducting, and there was a, I'm, I'm sure maybe you know Denise Ham.
0: I know the name.
1: She, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. She uh, she taught the second, second study conducting or for people for, for people who are interested. So I um, I did go along to her her sessions her lessons. So they were still and actually that was the first time I'd had proper conducting teaching if I think about it now. Yeah. Um, yeah. A little bit of technique. Um, but yeah, at that stage it was I was just uh, thinking about being an orchestral bassoonist, being yeah. a bassoonist um, with maybe doing conducting as a hobby. Um, at some stage, because I was very clear that I loved it. Um, and but I probably at that stage didn't think that it was possible. Maybe even to have a career in it. Either I wasn't good enough, or um, I started too late, or whatever. I mean, of yeah. course, I hadn't started too late. Um, but I started relatively early. But um, I the the idea wasn't wasn't quite formed in my in my head at that stage of actually it being possible to be for me to be a conductor.
0: I I laughed because I was in exactly the same situation. I was a little bit more blinkered and focused on being an orchestra musician. I wanted to be one from the age of 15. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'd seen a documentary on the television about the London Symphony Orchestra and realised you could get paid to do this job. And then when you went on tour, they paid you extra cash and you stayed in nice hotels. And, and you had a
1: great yeah, time.
0: Yeah, and Mar- yeah, exactly. And Morris Murphy seemed to only practice in the adverts whilst watching the television in the morning. You know, so I was a, a lot more focused, though I did do some conducting at conservatory level and really enjoyed it, but it was not a focus. I didn't think that's what i wanted to do i was focused on getting into into the profession and being an orchestral player um and i look back on it now and think i wonder what if i'd studied you know conducting whether i'd be any better but we're going we're going to come to the the big question later on about you know having been in the, a professional musician in the profession doing the job for x amount of years whether you whether we think we're better conductors for it or not but we'll come to that later on <laughs> um, so what made you having done the royal academy what made you then seek out Germany as a place to start for further and higher study? And eventually, of course, the Carrion Academy, which is basically a schooling ground for Berlin Philharmonic players, isn't yeah,
1: it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It what was made you third... go in that direction? Um, the I, uh, My teacher in Germany was Klaus Tunemann, who at that stage in the early 90s was the bassoonist and the bassoon teacher. Um, and uh, he was he was professor of bassoon in Hanover, and I'd done a summer course with him between I think second and third years at Cambridge, and he actually said, you know, if you like to come to Germany, I will, I will um, you, know, you can have a place, and I'd like to teach you, which yeah. was an incredible offer because he was one of my idols, you know, the, the Vivaldi concertos that he's recorded, you know, I think I've listened to them a, a billion times. Only a slight exaggeration there, um, <laughs> when I was at school at least, and um. So, um, and also, I, I mean, I thought I was only going to go for a year to Germany. Right. That was in 1994. I'm still here. And, um, yeah, I thought it, was, it would be interesting to go abroad for a year. And I had, I had a very generous scholarship from the uh, DAAD, which was really great. Sorry, my yeah. cat. Um, <laughs> and I uh, don't know if you can hear. Ooh. And sorry. Um, and um yeah, so I just uh went over to Hanover, expecting that I was going to come back to London very quickly, and then I stayed in Hanover for two years, and then I did get this incredible, uh, incredible luck. I had an incredible luck, um, to be accepted into the Carry On Academy, um. Yeah. Which is where you really do feel like you're a member of the Berlin Phil for two years until then after two years the next person comes. But I was it uh, was it was absolutely incredible. And you know, you go on tour with them and of course play in the orchestra in Berlin, their lessons and chamber music with other members of the academy, and it was just an absolutely fantastic, um, very special two years. Um and um then that was really also when when the conducting started to uh rear its head again. Yeah. Um strangely enough um also again being you know in, in weekly contact with these incredible conductors you know it was just, just the, the most famous names going through every week And I used to even if I wasn't playing or when I wasn't playing and also I' always watch the rehearsals um right. so, sort of go up into the sort of furthest corner um of the hall and just sit there and just kind of enjoy it um and um and then one evening I was out and about in Berlin with a friend of mine from the orchestra and he said oh let's go into this Ah, oh, there's gonna be some there's some fun people here. They meet every Friday evening. And we went in and they said to him, "Oh, Klaus, is that um are you bringing us our new conductor?" And my friend was like, oh, no, she's not a conductor. I said, like, yes, yes, I am, actually. I did actually use the conduct, <laughs> and I'm really interested in it. Yeah. And they were from an amateur orchestra that you used to rehearse, that rehearses, still rehearses, every Friday evening in this particular part of town. And they always used to go to this pub after rehearsals. Yeah. And my friend from the from the Boniface also had had some contact, and he'd also conducted a little bit. And um, you know, in the heat of the moment, I said, okay, well, how do I apply? If they were looking for a new conductor. How do I apply? And he said, oh, just, you know, give us your phone number, basically. So I applied on a beer mat.
0: <laughs> um, Brilliant. <laughs> uh,
1: which they still have in their archives. Yeah. And um so a little picture of myself, phone number in those days, uh no email addresses. And uh yeah, then they invited me to an audition and um they just said, Yeah, we'd like to have you as our as our next conductor. And I actually conducted that orchestra for seven years
0: mm. every
1: Friday evening in Berlin and the Otto Symphony Orchestra, because they used to rehearse in the Otto Street. Yeah. And um a huge orchestra, seventy or eighty people, and incredibly bad. I don't think any of them are going to be listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, but if they are, hi. And um, but really, I mean, it was purely for the social uh, yeah. social aspect of it. I mean, no, of course, there was nothing like an audition, and nobody really had to even be able to play their instrument. There was one one player uh, who really could. He could hold it.
0: Yeah, that was it. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I, unfortunately, sometimes used to actually blow down it, which wasn't really yeah. great. But um, you know, it was, and they wanted to do really, really ambitious programs. You know, Brahms Symphony. We didn't actually do Mahler, but you know, it was heading that direction when I left. And it was, you know, it was um, kind of awful. Uh, my only maxim was that I was never ever going to stop in a concert, mm. even if I had to shout out bar numbers or sing various people's parts which didn't happen. Yeah. just keep going which yeah. was the best training really yeah. um and you know so I, all week I'd go uh into the, into the to the philharmonie and watch these conductors and you know look pick out some you know, amazing moves and then Friday evenings try them out with the <laughs> with the amateur orchestra it didn't always work but um it was in a way it was a, a sort of I didn't even realize at the time I was kind of sort of teaching myself learning by doing but yes. but consciously um Actually, watching various people's techniques and uh, seeing then what worked with an amateur orchestra and what didn't, and it was actually it's actually a very interesting way of doing it. But I'm sure your experience was you also uh, did some some, some
0: uh, yeah, similar amateur, kind of yeah, absolutely, uh, yeah yeah. I mean my trajectory. Yeah, I mean I I started conducting amateur orchestras around 2002 uh, when mm-hmm. I was 32. So I'd been in the CBSO ten years already playing. Um, and I sort of, I was asked to, to do a concert, I think, um, um, in the late 90s, But and then sort of dip my toe in it. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, yeah, I, I probably started dipping my toe back in it uh, around 97, 98. But then, uh, 2002, I was asked to, to conduct the orchestra. I actually, I conducted again only the other day in a concert, still 21 years later. Well, um, I conduct them twice a year, pretty much. And out of blind Brilliant. loyalty because I love them, and the, and it was their 30th birthday concert. Actually, the Symphony of Birmingham, and I wrote in the program that I honestly think without the CBSO, obviously, and and without the Symphony of Birmingham, I would not be doing what I'm doing now. Because I was about to say to you, however, I mean the Symphony of Birmingham, very, very, very good. They're not as bad as the Otto Orchestra you mentioned. Uh, they're very good indeed. But you spend a lot of time with them you have to learn the scores very hard anyway to teach it to them but then you know you spend a lot of time actually learning the scores with them doing it and any piece I've done with Symphonia, I could stand in front of any professional orchestra in the world and know that I could conduct it because I've I've done it you know inside out back to front, upside down you know Absolutely. you have to fix you have to fix problems that when you get into the profession you never have to fix um Absolutely. and actually sometimes what it means is when you conduct a professional orchestra and there is a problem you can pinpoint it quite quickly because you've had to pinpoint every single aspect of that um Absolutely. and yeah without though the, those experiences with amateurs and youth orchestras which I'm sure we'll come on to later with you as well you know uh, you you learn how to hear, how to fix things, but you learn the scores so bloody well, don't you? So, absolutely, you know, yeah.
1: every Friday evening for half a year, you know, we only did two programs a year.
0: <laughs> yeah. And
1: it was always, a, it was always a panic in the, uh, in the rehearsal. But, um, yeah, of course, you learn them and learn them. We occasionally would have sectionals as well. So, of course, sectionals are a really wonderful way to get to know mm. a score. Um, and, uh, yeah, it absolutely, you know, if you don't show your sports sandwich, they're not going to really play them. And of course, you know, the upbeat's got to be in tempo or else there'll be all kinds of little um, uh, train wrecks, left, right and centre. And yeah, of course, I mean, if, if people sometimes, if they don't get a cue, they just won't play. Yes. If they do, they still won't play. But <laughs> at least it's uh, not your fault. But um, no, it's a, it was invaluable. I also, I say exactly the same. If it hadn't been for this one fateful evening and then all these seven years with the Otto Sinfonica, then um, I also probably wouldn't be... Wouldn't be doing what i am doing now an amazing amazing way to learn
0: meanwhile you eventually go out into the big wide world
1: eventually. and it's eventually
0: while, yes. and you become principal bassoon of the komische opera or the comic opera in berlin and your principal bassoon for ten years, what? How was the journey from Carrion Academy out into the? We a, a quick seamless, or did you do a couple of years of trialling everywhere and anywhere? Um, how was that?
1: There was a, no. There was what a little, a little bit in between, which I don't, probably t- isn't mentioned. Um, I first went to Bremen to the theatre to the opera orchestra in Bremen, yeah. straight from Carrion Academy, and that was that was. That's hard because yeah. it's, you know, you, of course, Berlin Phil. It's it's you know it's luxurious. It's just fantastic. Um, and then you go. I mean, bremen's a it's a good orchestra. It's a so-called A orchestra in Germany, but it's it really is the real world and opera and symphony concerts and um a lot of work. A lot of you know my for the first opera that I played and you really are thrown in is was Rosenkavalier, oh. um and there you know I can remember being absolutely terrified. Um, also when I started the Commercial Opera, um sometimes you you know if you're lucky if you have one rehearsal if it's a Revival from the previous year where you weren't there um and you really are thrown into I think I had a, my my worst panic in Otello uh, where I just did not know where we were I was just thinking where well, we could be anywhere on this page I don't know where we were you know if the, if the conductor thinks the orchestra knows it really well you know they don't put down the the empty bars or anything no, and it's man. just in you know, was that it oh um but luckily you normally have really, um, really, really helpful, friendly colleagues who and I carry it's bigger fifty nine ah! <laughs> and to the next page. Um so uh, that was really that really was going out into the real world in Bremen. And then I was there for three years and and I um went back every Friday afternoon for the Otto Symphonica. I got up at four thirty every Saturday morning to go back um back to Bremen for a Saturday morning rehearsal if there was one. Um and uh, but I was desperate to come back to Berlin because right. I, I do actually I love Berlin and I did at that time and that time it was even more exciting than it is now it was changing almost every week um with the building work in the former east and um and then this this job came up in the commercial Opera the comic opera and uh, I have to get this job mm-hmm. I was so fixated on getting this job um that I actually you know I I really, really, really practiced. You know, I had a little chart, um, uh, how much I was going to do every day, and this at half speed, and this, and this, and this, and, this. and I was—I've never been so well prepared. Yeah. And luckily, it worked out. And I mean, that's—it's—I'm really so, so lucky that, that 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 worked out on that day. And um, yeah, then I could I moved back to Berlin, and everything was was wonderful again. I hadn't didn't have to get up at four thirty on a Saturday morning, <laughs> um, and um, and I had very very very, very enjoyable. Yes, yeah. in the, in, the, in the comic in the comic was really a wonderful wonderful
0: time. Before we leave the Carrion Academy and then go to twenty twelve, which is when it says on your website you turned your focus to conducting. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna linger on that in a minute. Um, but I'm gonna go back to the Carrion Academy and and talk to you specifically about. So obviously you would have been coached a lot in in bassoon playing in how to play in the Berlin Philharmonic woodwind section, but then also as a member of the Berlin Philharmonic corporately across the whole orchestra. Were conductors mentioned, i.e. how to handle certain conductors when you played with the Berlin Philharmonic? uh, Was were conductors mentioned as in you know how they have an attitude towards the, the you know listening to conductors or working with them how was that taught to you at all in uh, you know i'm just thinking you know all of the if there's stuff that you you were filed away from all of those years you know those years ago playing the bassoon at the Carrion academy from what they told you about the berlin Phil way of being
1: yeah it's an interesting question it wasn't talked about that much mm. it was um at that stage you're hopefully really good enough to um sort of soak it up yourself i think if yeah. you'd made a sort of terrible uh pas in terms of etiquette or playing wise people will be very quick to tell you but i mean basically when you're third bassoon which is a most horrific job you know it's just the low quiet notes it's just yeah. awful you know, as long as you're kind of not noticed but you know perfectly in tune extremely quiet um then then you're doing fine um I mean a couple of a couple of times we'd or people would say, Oh, let's just, you know, we'll just tune that chord or to discuss a little bit of articulation in the in the dressing room, mm-hmm. um in the warm up room. If the conductor hadn't particularly done it, I mean there's quite a lot of autonomy in Burn and Phil at that time. I mean, Claudio Obati was the chief conductor who is my absolute one of my absolute gods of conducting. But um he didn't really need to but he didn't particularly he wasn't known for his you know his detailed rehearsal like Kirill Petrenko is for example yes. Um. and so a couple of times there was a little bit of discussion that, oh let's do that a little bit shorter or whatever but normally you just immediately adapt to what the principal players were doing yeah. it was Um. it was I mean at least in those days maybe it's different now Um. it wasn't really we didn't really talk about it <laughs> that much yeah. you just had to quickly adapt and, and, and fit in
0: yeah and and, and and listen to what's going on within the orchestra.
1: Absolutely, you know,
0: all of the yeah, time. Because yeah. for me, that it's the height of of a listening orchestra, an orchestra that listens to itself to fix its own ensemble problems before they get out of hand, and not rely exactly. on somebody with a stick doing it. That to absolutely. me, that's how it comes across. So yeah, yeah.
1: Although I think that probably English orchestras. Are possibly, are certainly quicker in in terms of doing that because they only have you know far, they're far far fewer rehearsals in the Berlin club You do have five rehearsals, um, so there is a lot of time to fix stuff, mm. either as uh, you know autonomously uh, or even with the conductor if it's somebody that really does go into tiny details. Um, but as you say, the orchestra fixes itself very mm. very quickly. Um, also in terms of sound, you just I mean, also of course in the audition they, they, they choose someone who whose sound they think is going to fit with the orchestra. Yes. I don't think they they choose someone who was, you know, had a totally different sound. Obviously I've been playing in Germany with Klaus Thudmann, who who was the, you know, the guru of bassoon sound at the time and one of the principal bassoons had studied with Klaus Thudman, so there was a real progression there. And um, you know, I sounded like what they wanted. Yeah. bassoon to sound like, and as, not that I wasn't the only one, but um, at, at that stage I'd been in Germany for two years so um, and it it, it fitted well. um, But I mean it, it was terrifying at times, um, you, know, <laughs> when, you know, a bardo fixed his beady eye on you with this kind of oh, terribly sort of shocked look when you had to be incredibly quiet and yeah. it was just there was one moment at the end of Mahler 3 where the third bassoon just has a bottom D, a horrible note and the bass is just playing on you know one hair just basically absolutely inaudible and is kind of looking over just sort of looking looking personally offended that he can actually hear <laughs> yeah. hear something coming out of that bassoon um but then again if you don't play it then of course also everyone will know because you know yeah. it was it was but of course you know if it, if it goes well which normally hopefully um it might do um then of course it's incredibly incredibly fulfilling and mm. uh, it's you're euphoric after these concerts within as part of this most incredible machine in the way um with one of these uh, amazing conductors standing at the front, it was really some of the most memorable special um, experiences.
0: I said I was going to mention it. You turned your focus to conducting in 2012, it says on your website. And the question I've written yes. underneath with two question marks behind it in capital letters is why? Because I know why I started thinking about conducting and doing more and it sort of just gently and slowly happened, but... What what was it that made you think? Do you know what I really do want to conduct more often slash all of the time and put the bassoon mm. away? What was it? Why was it a long, ten, slow process over the ten years, or or did you just think? Do you know what I really want to give this a go?
1: It was a bit, a bit of both actually. Um, it was it was a, maybe a um a process over the five years before right. I actually left the orchestra, because I started doing more. I wasn't just doing the Otto Sinfonica, by then I was doing some actually really good um, amateur orchestras, conducting yeah. some good amateur orchestras in Berlin. And I'd been doing a lot of, um, some youth orchestras, a lot of sectionals for youth orchestras, uh, Junger Deutsche Philharmonie, I was do you the know, Woodwind sectionals, where you also obviously have to conduct, and yes. um, if it's a Mahler symphony or something. Um, also great, great, as I said, great way to learn a piece, but also a great way to, um, actually start thinking about how to conduct a Mahler symphony, if you just have a few woodwinds, Um, but so there was that, and then um, at the Kormacher Orpah, a few friends and I sort of got a a group together, and um, a chamber orchestra, a chamber ensemble, um, and I did a concert every year with them in the Kormacher Orpah, and we did things like Pierre Lunaire, we only did it also, difficult stuff, and again, very (laughs) ambitious, but uh, young and uh, a little bit... um, Naive, maybe, but fearless. Um, things... fearless is what you are. Fearless, That's what it is. Maybe yeah. it was, yeah, yeah. It was. Um, Schoenberg Chamber Symphony and uh, Marla der Erde in the chamber music version and things like that. Yeah. Um, and then, and uh, you know, already people were sort of started starting to notice that the at the comic opera and I, uh, Kirill Petrenko was the, the chief conductor there at the time and he came to the uh, Pierre Lunaire performance and oh, yes, it's not bad. And would you like he yes, asked if I'd like to conduct some just piano rehearsals for the operas for yeah. the operas, um, which I did which was absolutely amazing um, an yeah. amazing experience um and uh, strangely enough it's a recurring opera uh Rosen Cavalier was one of the ones that i uh, conducted quite a lot and my husband's a singer at the commercial opera and he was in that show so that was kind of a nice little coincidence but um so it was getting more and more. And um, I'd even started to do a little professional work and also even, strangely enough, a little bit of conducting teaching, although oh, yeah, um, yeah. not not quite yet in terms of technique, but in terms of um, what I thought that, well, I still think um, orchestral musicians need from a conductor, which often isn't very much talked about in conducting uh, study.
0: Hurrah, um, hurrah. <laughs> uh, I've just spent a week in Glasgow uh, conducting uh, the Royal uh Conservatory of scotland their symphony orchestra but also spending every other waking minute with the uh, five conductors in their conducting oh, class right. and they were very thankful of me for telling them all of the other stuff you know they get taught what to do with their hands and their arms and their faces and how to learn a score and all but i was talking to them about you know what you should and shouldn't say and talking about exactly. programming and talking it's the other stuff it's the practical of stuff course. um the
1: vocabulary the, exactly the vocabulary that you use yeah. you know yeah you exactly. don't tell someone to play quietly. You ask them to play quietly um, yeah. and that kind of stuff. And um, so, yeah, and then in 2012, there was a kind of, um, uh, there was a certain moment in, in 2011 when I actually thought, okay, um, actually, one of the catalysts was a rather sad occasion. That, um, a very good friend of mine, um, his partner died um, quite young, mid-40s, um, of a brain tumour, and it really brought it home to me that, you know, we only have a short time here. I only mm. have one life. And, you know, I thought if I don't do this now, I will regret it forever. And, you know, the same thing might happen to me tomorrow. So mm. I thought, like, this is, you know, um, take this as a kind of, um yeah, keep <laughs> um, and um, and and do it. And then I just thought, okay, I have to make a, a clean break now. So I just absolutely resigned. Mm. I didn't immediately start playing the bassoon, but I left the opera. It was also important. It was important for me, but also for my colleagues, my former colleagues, to know that I also meant it seriously. You know, they said, yes. "Oh, you can take a half a year off. You can try whatever you know. Or take a year off, or you can do. You could get under fifty percent of your job or something." And I was like, "No, let me just. Let's. I just want to do it." Mm. And I'm so glad I did it that way. I have to say, um, and it was also nice. For the first couple of years, I actually played um, in a lot of other orchestras. Um, as an extra bassoon. Also in London, I played in the LPO quite a lot, which was really, really great, something I hadn't done. And um, so I I also saw that side. um, Yes. which I I played a little bit in London, BBC and stuff when I'd been there or or just the first few years in Germany. But then I had a big gap and I didn't really, I hadn't had much contact. But RPO and Philharmonia and mainly LPO, I did a lot of in sort of 2013 and fourteen when um, I was just phasing out. And um, that was also really, really interesting to see the similarities and differences between yeah. English and German orchestras and orchestral mm. musicians. Um, so it, yes, so to answer your question, it had been building up to it for a long time, but there was that moment where I said, like, it's now or never. I think it was mm. my 40th birthday as well that sort of felt a little bit like a watershed or a turning point. Of, you know, if I don't do it now, it's going to be too late. Yeah. I wish I'd done it sooner, but better than late than never.
0: Well, I, I had, I mean, I'm sure listeners uh, who've listened to many episodes will remember I said this in episode 50. Uh, I retired, and I'm putting inverted commas up in the air on July the 2nd, um, 2014, as a violinist. But I had the the very, very, very fortunate position I was in was that the CBSO uno- unofficially kept my job open for two years as a violinist but as far as the world was concerned we told nobody that so I did as far as the world was concerned I did what you did I just stopped playing on July Fantastic. the second mm-hmm. 2014 as it happened that was exactly what happened because I never played again I never played with anybody again um they even said to me do you want you know we could give you some extra work at the back I said well what's the point of that I haven't left then I'm just sort of coming back as an extra player exactly um, so yeah, I I it, that's how it eventually turned out. But I did have a, a safety net underneath. But exactly like you, I I couldn't imagine being in my dotage, rocking on a rocking chair with a blanket over my knees, thinking, I wonder what would have happened if I'd have tried conducting. I wanted to try, exactly. it. you know. And exactly. then if it works, great. If it doesn't didn't work, well then at least I had a go, and I could st- still rock away, smiling, thinking, Well, I gave it a go, you know. Yeah, um, absolutely. I'm so, just... so glad I did.
1: Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. But do
0: you still play the violin? Uh, there's, there's one on my desk. <laughs> I there's one, try. There's one I, on my desk. Yeah, oh, exactly like yours. The bow <laughs> sitting on the... um uh, it, It's sitting on my desk, gathering dust, and occasionally I'll try a bowing out. And I did actually play it in public, uh, coaching a a string orchestra recently that didn't want to have a conductor, but wanted to learn how to, you know, sort of conduct themselves. Uh, and it wasn't very good after yeah. nine years of not playing. But... um. But I don't miss it, um, at all. Uh, I, you know, I love what I'm doing. Um, how soon into your decision to stop? I mean, uh, you list mentors as John Carew, who of course famously was also teacher and mentor to Sir Simon Rattle right back at the start of his career, George Hurst, who's another very often quoted name on this podcast and Vladimir Yarovsky as well. How, uh, who you assisted, um, how soon into the process, or had you always been mentored by them during the time you were playing the bassoon? Um, d- did you immediately go and seek some some help?
1: Um, well, George Hurst was... Uh, I went to Canford the, Canford, the famous Canford summer school, um, three times. The first time was in 1995, which was when I'd um, just moved to Germany. Um, and so I was... I, I think it was... No, it was actually before I started with the Ottos. Um, so I was obviously, uh, probably looking back to come come back to England and do a summer course, and I thought that yeah. that, that, uh, sounded like fun. Um, was a little bit later than that. Um, but it was around the time where I was, uh, starting to become, get my interest back in conducting or thinking of do yeah. it a more, and then I didn't go for a couple of for several years, and then I um. Went back in 2005 and 2006 to Canford, and yeah. um, and the uh, the first time I mean George Hirst was quite a um uh formidable formidable um person, and it, it was also a kind of scary. And he used to pick various people to sort of be in his class, as it were. You know, they were yes. um four groups, and uh, if you were in his class, you know it wasn't it wasn't fun anymore. But of course it was it was great because you got a lot of a lot of teaching, a lot of time with the orchestra and with the two pianos and then i was lucky enough to get into george's class and suddenly it's uh, you're learning you know all through the night all this um you know and you have you kind of had to do it george's way george's way or the highway but um i learned a huge amount really from from that um and he also invited he used to do a, a day of masterclass in uh, somewhere in in the uk which he invited me to a few of those um and um so that was a, he was a very important in lots of ways and then the the john Carew thing was actually um more actually it was after I'd left the commercial opera, for yeah. a few years, and he was very very generous with his time, and um, I would just cause his his daughter Anna Karu um lives in Berlin, so he mm. comes to Berlin quite often. He used to come to Berlin relatively often to visit her, and um, he would just you know just say yes, yeah, so, um, so Catherine, tell me about Brahms one, and it would just be a chat, <laughs> you know, yeah. sort of a two yeah. or three hour sort of very formless chat. We never did any technique, not at yeah. all. It was never ever about you know you need to do more with your wrist or whatever. It was just only about the music, which was great actually. Yes. Um Very 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 interesting. Um, and um, and then with Vladimir was I've actually played with with Vladimir Yorofsky quite a lot as bassoonist, also in the LPO, but also in a contemporary music ensemble that he conducts in Berlin, which I which I played in, and. Um, so I knew him quite well. He was also assistant conductor at the Komische Oper where I started, and ah. Kirill Petrenko was the chief conductor, and Vladimir was the first Kapellmeister. So we had also great conductors then, as well, um, and uh, well, virtually the same age. And um, um, so, uh, yes, yeah, just know, knowing him, lucky, yeah, being sort of close to him, uh, being a player, and having the chance to talk to him. He, you know, I think the first time he just sort of said. um, uh, I was telling him that something had fallen through, and he said, "Are you free next week?" And I said, "Yes, I am now because this thing didn't work out." And he said, "Oh well, um, I'm with Konczekow next week, and I don't have a have an assistant. Would you like to come?" And I said, of course, I would absolutely yeah. love to come. Yeah. And um, so again, it was a mad scramble to learn was quite a, a difficult Vladimir Rossky program with Bert Whistle and Messiaen. And um, but um, uh, that was fantastic. Of course, to go and listen, and Bert was, was there and was sitting in the hall and. Catch go and tell Vladimir that the second gong from the left is too bloody loud. <laughs> I'm telling that now. We're still rehearsing. Go and tell him. That. But yeah. um, that was a, it was that really really wonderful experience. Of course, Vladimir is, is incredible intellectually and in terms of his programming. It's just he's absolutely fantastic. So I learned a huge amount from him as well. And that was, uh, that was until relatively recently. Um, mm. that I'd done a, a few uh, with the and with the LPO as well I assisted him on Marla 2 which also involved conducting the offstage music
0: yeah um, which was which one
1: is... of the most nerve-wracking things I've ever done
0: <laughs> I'm grinning and smiling I've done it as well I did offstage for Tristan and Isolde for uh, um Andres Nelson's on the CBSO and I've yeah I've done various things isn't it frightening my it god is absolutely
1: oh. terrifying yeah. and also Vladimir being Vladimir uh, he wanted the the one-off stage the, the marching band and the multitude to come from one side of the stage and the the horns and the timpani thing to come from the other side in the festival hall yeah. um but there's about I think well, I know one minute 42 seconds in between and I had <laughs> to run uh through the backstage um and get to the other side and then you just see the, the monitor and it's, yeah. it feels very quiet and you just see just kind of um you don't hear anything at all. And then you just have to start. And the first, of course, there's only one rehearsal in the in the, in the the venue. And the first time I didn't get there in time, I wasn't sprinting fast enough. Um, and, uh, you know, I was sort of just arriving and I was like, Catherine! Oh, God. <laughs> so and that was it, you know. Um, so, you know, and uh, so that the, in the actual, in the show, you know, there were people waiting, holding the doors open, mm. um, going from the backstage in the Festival Hall. I was running with my score open at the right page. And, and it was fine, but absolutely nerve-wracking, but um, yeah, um, again, sitting in bed at Miss Marla rehearsals is also a revelation.
0: Of course. Before we leave and go on to guest conducting and youth orchestras and maybe contemporary music, we'll, we'll see where the the chat goes. It's popped into my head and because, you know, I've been in the, the same situation as you. You know, you've had people who you would call a mentor, like George Hurst and uh, Vladimir Yurovsky, who... You know, you would have uh, assisted and also been taught by, in George's case, uh, technical ways of conducting. But also you would have played for, as you said, Abado, Mytink, uh, Jelini, uh, and played for countless others, including Kirill Petrenko at the Comic Opera. If you put a video on yourself today uh, and gopro yourself in a rehearsal do you think any of those people have rubbed off on you more than others? Because th- there are moments when I know if I want to be clear, I go to a Zachary Oromo upbeat because I played for him for 10 years. He's the clearest yeah. upbeat I ever saw. If I went, want a particular, one particular, one or two particular gestures, I go to a couple of uh, in the Andrus Nelson's bag that I watched him do. But you know, most of the time, none none of this is conscious at all. But I'm sure I've watched myself back in video and thought, oh, there's an awful lot of that in there, an awful lot of this. You, how do, do you? If you look at yourself in video now, do you think there are certain conductors who rubbed off on you more than others?
1: Yeah, but more more maybe in my head. <laughs> I think yes, I'm doing a certain course. gesture than, yeah. I, than I actually see. But yeah, I mean, I I love Abardo's elegance. Um and you know, this she, kind of she, wonderful kind of phrasing movement. I think, oh that's you know, that's uh, uh I'd love it if that looked like anything yes. like Claudio Abaro. Um and yeah, you know, of course Kira Petrenko is well incredibly clear and you know super rhythmical and very mm. um if things aren't particularly together, maybe I might go, go into that kind of style. Um and what I loved about Bernard, Bernard Heiding, of course, just this absolute clarity and being very very uh, very kind of cool never, never getting um sort of out of control um mm. um which you know, it's not, maybe good to get out of control at certain moments but you know occasionally <laughs> if if, uh, if, I, if I want that kind of atmosphere then I might kind of think oh that's a little bit channeling channeling the inner Bernard hiding here just doing something very very small contained controlled sort of hopefully perfect in his case um but um yeah I mean I do um it's it's fun to, to watch conductors. I mean, I do because I do quite a lot of teaching, uh, and um, you know, I, I said everyone, I'm sure you do too. Um, you know, take this and that from someone else, and then you make it your own. You make a yeah. kind of synthesis of all the movements that you that you like, and that hopefully work to make your own technique. I think that's true of conducting, more than of any other form of musical expression performance.
0: And it's the hardest thing about assisting or going to somebody else's rehearsals. So last week with the five people at the uh, at the Conservatory in Glasgow, they sat behind me for two or three days and checking balance. And then for the for the halfway through the second or third day, I said, why don't you come and sit on the stage and then you can see what I'm what I'm who I'm looking at and how I'm responding to the players. And they said, are you sure? I said, absolutely. don't worry about the balance. That's fine. You know, but come and have a look. As we would have done as as orchestral players in our you know day to day jobs, we're we're looking at the conductors front on. What the audience doesn't get to see, we get to see all the time. And I think it's important that young conductors do get a chance to sit on in the orchestra and wow. see what we're doing with our with our uh, with our eyes. That's a difficult sentence to spit out on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> um, and and I, I, yeah, it's the drawback of. I mean, assisting and helping in rehearsals is the best way of learning conducting without actually conducting. But still, you don't get the best experience that you we had as seeing these people up front. Oh,
1: absolutely! I think conducting students really should should go and sit in an orchestra, not of course to watch the conductors, but also just to soak up that atmosphere, which can be very mm. different depending on the conductor, just depending on the day or the piece um, or who's on that day, and just sit, you know, somewhere amongst the violas or the bassoons, and just, but not not even for a week and it doesn't even time but for a couple of months you know to see how things change um mm. over the season people get tired people you know the most important thing is you know when is the break
0: and
1: <laughs> is it going to be when he said it was going to be or is yes. he going to put in the second movement after all and uh, you know that, that kind of stuff and um i, th- I think it would be invaluable yeah. i mean nobody does it um and, apart from the people who are actually playing uh, and yeah. who've played in in orchestras but absolutely it's so interesting and then of course as you say to see the conductor's gestures facial expressions from the front front is just um also so 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 you learn so much more than you do seeing it from the back
0: i am going to keep it Personal between the two of us because I remember my first guest conducting engagements away from CBSO was my home orchestra and I conducted them. They were the first professional orchestra I ever conducted. But I do remember my first ones away from home, my first away fixtures. When you're literally on your own for the first time, you're flying somewhere or you're you know getting on a train and going somewhere across Germany. To, how were those first? Uh, trips away and did you have any I've asked this before I mean if you had the choice of a program did you have a a piece that you like to go and conduct on those first engagements but if not you know did you have any tactics any thoughts any you know what sort of things calmed you down or any mental processes
1: yeah I mean the first one the very first um professional thing was in Magdeburg which is quite near to, to Berlin this was a strange occasion because um I knew a few of the players. In fact, it was still when I was in the commercial opera, it was just the, the last year, my last yeah. season of the commercial opera. And a lot of those players thought it was a bit strange that the mm. principal student of the commercial opera was coming to do a symphony concert with their orchestra. And it was a slightly difficult um, vibe at the beginning, but it, it was fine. The program was, they just, they just gave me the program. I think I could cho- choose one piece, um, a slightly strange program, actually. Um, it was, um, Brahms tragic overture and stupid unfinished so it went it was sort of very dark and depressing, and then it then it went into um Copeland Appalachian Spring and Bernstein divertimento so it was wow. sort of uh um, let's stupid. get happy in the second
0: half <laughs>
1: exactly exactly yeah, yeah. and uh, it really was it was there was the two halves were so different and um I think I would suggested the Bernstein that was all but um in I mean, I, I think I was very naive um I just went there and thought it was going to be fine. I noticed that some people were slightly weird, um, but I just kind of, kind of got on with it. And then they inv- I invited me back for the next season for a very different programme, which was also just given to me as contemporary, hardcore contemporary stuff, and and two pieces by list of all things. So again, it was a slightly weird programme. I mean, it wasn't until much later that I actually got to cho- choose... Um, mm. My own programs normally, but um, yes, it is strange when you suddenly you're you're on your own. And at that stage, I still wasn't quite sure whether I was an orchestral bassoonist or, or a conductor or what was going on. And I'm sure that I'm sure that showed. I'm sure people were. Well, Wondering what what's going on, which is one of the reasons, as I said, where I decided to make an absolutely a clean break. Yes. Um. Although in Berlin, I'm still a lot of people still know me as that zoonist. Um. I mm. we heard so You know, if i see someone I have not seen for ages, oh, we heard you. Have you left the commercial brass? Yeah. It was, you know, only like eleven years ago. But yeah. um, of course. How how do people know then? Um. Why should they? Um. But um, yeah. And after that, uh, after that, there was a, a. I mean, a lot of a lot of youth orchestras came along, and also a lot of stuff in South America. It uh, sort of came almost as a coincidence at the beginning, and then that, that grew. Um, and then, of course, I could just I, I, I could choose my own programs, and I just chose stuff that I, th- I thought was going to be fun for festivals, young people, young musicians, um, crazy stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, if I'm lucky enough to choose programs, then you know, my gosh, I would, there's normally almost a theme or a soloist or something. And if not, then of course, the sky's the limit. But yeah. it's, as you know, it's different every time
0: it's funny before that clean break is made or was made you made yours or was made for me you know i had a similar experience i went and conducted a, another orchestra in the uk i won't say which one uh but it, the story will give away because the person will know that who i'm talking about but i was introduced to the orchestra and i looked out and i saw many people i knew because of course the uk orchestra scene is quite small um you know you, you do people do go and play extra in other orchestras and stuff like that I looked at the second bassoon who looked and his mouth was wide open. And the reason why it was wide open was we used to speak regularly on the phone because he ran the, the cricket team for his orchestra and I ran the cricket team for mine. And so we used to oh, try and brilliant. fix fixtures together. And then of course we'd play cricket against each other. He was a wicket keeper, I was a I was a fast bowler. And he just looked with this puzzled look with a mouth open as if to so, say, so the guy conducting us today is the guy who not who I've faced playing cricket and know as a second violinist. And I think that yes. confusion is you know, I know of another orchestra where the manager said to, m- said to me, did you notice the first day that I rang you up to book you for work? And it was the day after that clean break. He wouldn't book me until I'd made the break. You know, he wouldn't well, do that. Yeah yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, And yeah, it is strange, isn't it? Because as you said, the, you know, you, when you're conducting colleagues and colleagues of not long ago, months ago, weeks ago, it, it can be tough.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, also in the commercial opera, when I did, I conducted a children's opera there, again, slightly strange, um, not quite mouth open, but at least metaphorically, why is the, yeah. why is our bassoonist suddenly standing, you know, not if, people don't read the schedule, you know, people don't know no, what, what, what my life's doing. Why is the bassoonist suddenly standing up there on the podium? What's going on? Yeah. Who does she think she is? Yeah. Um, and then they realised, oh, she's conducting the children's opera this year. Oh, my yeah. God. Um, and actually, so she's that... really
0: rather good. And maybe I should have you know, get, found out that she could, could oh. conduct. You know, that, that's <laughs> it, isn't it?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it was, that was uh, not, not the easiest. So, um, but yeah, we're slowly, slowly getting over that now. But it really has taken its time to be not thought of as the bassoonist who conducts a little bit amateur orchestras.
0: The listeners will know, and maybe you do, that there is an 11th question. And it's about score marking and studying how do you go about mm-hmm. it i know that like me you're not a great pianist or maybe you are now maybe you've taught yourself how to be a great pianist um oh, no, no you no, haven't no. right okay so do you you know look at it quickly overall and then sort of start zoning in smaller and smaller and smaller do you start page one and work your way through it and for the geeks amongst us and i've asked this 140 times now at least are you a marker in Are you a red, blue, and black highlighter pens, or are you somebody who likes to keep your scores as clean and tidy as the day they arrived in the post? How do you go about it? I'm the ultimate
1: marker in it. It's awful. It's too much. (laughs) I'll tell you in a minute. But no, of course, I do the basic overview, first of all, a little bit of background reading, like whatever, very, very basic. Then I do my basic chart, whatever, kind of structure. And um, yeah people say that you shouldn't but I, I always advise people to as well listen to as many recordings as i can find certainly very Absolutely. very different ones an older one an authentic performance practice one a, you know a totally mainstream one all that kind of stuff um if it's a certain piece on an opera or whatever um yeah, if there are any traditions or anything you know why is everyone doing the twitter down there there oh maybe it used to be there or whatever um but yeah and then i do um Harmonic, whatever. But uh, then I do start at page one and I go through and I go through really with a fine tooth comb. And, um, you know, I like to think that I've read, I try to read every note of every part, every staccato dot, and every accent. Of course, it takes far too long. But I have this ridiculous color scheme. It's not just red, blue, and black. It's every single color. Yeah. And people can't see it, of course, but I have. My it's pencil case it's like you know it's like a sort of school girl's pencil case and I have all these different colored pencils I have different I have a different different color for every instrument and um, I think this came this is a system that I, I didn't know that people even put colors in their scores when I started marking up in this way um I just um it was when I was conducting the amateur orchestra and yeah. I thought I really need to know really really quickly if if it's the oboe or if it's the horn or whatever and with the color Mm. bracket, square bracket but if it's an entry, I have to give a round bracket if it's something that's important, but you know and they're all I haven't developed the system over the last twenty five years. Um and um also for the contemporary music that I do it's incredibly useful yes. to yeah. um to just have, you know, and then it's, it's uh, an accent in, in the oboe, you know, I'll put the accent in orange, that's the oboe's colour. Um and um and the scores look absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's really colour by numbers. It, it's you know, it's not even analysing. It's just it's sort of um, looking,
0: yeah,
1: he- hearing, you know, seeing who's who's with whom. Is mean, the articulation going to be the same or whatever? But really. Um, it's it's quite horizontal first of all. Then I mean, there's some vertical harmony or something. But and looking at various themes or how they or whatever get developed. But mainly this kind of this colourful marking is. Um, I was a bit embarrassed that people to look at my score you know, and and say, oh, can I look and can I just look at one place? I was like, no, I'm always like, okay, <laughs> but ignore the ignore the the purple. Yes, um, yeah, right. um, But I found. But then I mean that then I I kind of realised relatively recently that actually that's not actually. Um, I'm actually not reading that, as it were, when it's uh, in in a rehearsal or a concert, unless it's something that I'm doing at the very last minute or something very contemporary. It's that's the actual act of learning It's yes. actually saying, ah that's that there that, that's that bassoon there or that's the playing the same as whatever the violas, um and um actually being a, actually the physical act of putting a bracket around it and maybe writing it above it is actually something that helps me to to remember it. And I think yeah. that I actually in the in the in the performance I'm not actually I should hopefully know it by then, um, not actually reading the, the particular colour, but that's how I that's how I learn them. That's how, I, uh, and it, it really does take a lot of time. But I do feel that I'm quite well at the end of it, and then of course play through on the violin, stumble through some sort of rather basic chords on the piano, um, and and yeah, and it's just uh, to keep going through. But the colours they've helped me enormously.
0: At this point. Catherine and I had a short discussion about her love of teaching conducting and the importance of conducting youth ensembles. I've made this into a short bonus mini episode for subscribers to my Patreon page. You can subscribe to my Patreon page for as little as £5 a month. You can also pay annually and get a 10% discount. And if you're a student, feel free to contact me and I will raise that discount further for you. Not only will you have access to all of the previous mini-episodes attached to this podcast, you can listen to around 30 hours of interviews with prominent musicians, managers, agents and soloists. You can also read my very popular tour diaries that I write when I go and guest conduct abroad, including my latest one about a recent trip to Cologne and Salford. Just head to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Catherine larson Maguire. Catherine, it is that time that cannot be avoided. We must go through the 10 questions like every other conductor. And I always start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate?
1: Well, I absolutely, I've always mentioned my cats, there's one of them sitting behind me. I absolutely love the sound of my cats purring, three cats, and um, I miss them very much when I'm away. And, um, you know, that moment when you get home, the cat's sort of offended because you haven't been there for Hmm. a while. And then it it decides, it forgets to be offended, and it comes and sits on your knee, starts poking, and that deep purring of a cat is just i really they're great is actually by the way is huh, absolutely <laughs> my my favorite sound in the world it's so relaxing i think it's actually been proved to lower heart rate and blood pressure or, or, or that kind of stuff and it is it's it's also a sign of course that i'm home and um and everything's fine and yes. the cats are happy and so, I, so that's a very uh, very dear sound to me a sound that i hate i mean the, there aren't really any. I mean, it could like, be sort of obvious, like the dentist's drill or something, or you know, cats fighting. Um, but uh, certainly, musically, there aren't any. Could not say, you know, an out of tune piccolo? But um, that's uh, everyone might hate that. Um, there's nothing I particularly hate. Yeah. Um, in well, terms of enough. sound,
0: that's fair yeah. enough. I think I've had people who said that they uh, they can't pick an answer for that. I'm not sure. I've had cats purring, though. Which oh, is a, really? Yeah, which is a good one. I like firsts. I like, oh. I'm not sure. Uh, um, somebody may well email me or tweet me and say, well, actually, you know, episode 64. But anyway, <laughs> I don't remember another cat um, cat purring as the answer to question <laughs> yeah. one, which is very good. And maybe your cats feature in number three. I don't know. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing?
1: Well, certainly being with my cats would be some of that. But um, I... um. I live here in Berlin with my three cats and my husband and I would be at home. It's, it's very, very, very nice uh, being at home, but only because I'm lucky enough to be away so much in fantastic places. And I would spend a lot of, a, a lot of these 24 hours, I'd invite my friends round for yeah. a party. Um, I'm also lucky enough to have a really wonderful circle of friends, some of whom were colleagues in the Cormier Opera. We're kind of nearly all musicians. It has to be said yeah. very, um, uh, not not particularly broad-minded circle. Well, broad-minded in one respects, but um, all more or less musicians, and uh, we ch- we see each other regularly, and um, it's it's always wonderful. And uh, if I had this twenty-four hours, I probably wouldn't spend the whole twenty-four hours with my friends. But um, you know, I do very very simple things. You know, sort of go for a walk, have a wonderful cup of coffee, and get home, then prepare just a really great party for my friends. And I have a kind of sort of a children's party, and I don't really cook stuff. I just sort of get crisps and biscuits and drinks <laughs> and make no. whatever crazy cocktails, and uh, just hang out with my friends again. It sounds very simple, um, but because I'm lucky enough to do you know to travel to to different places and see all kinds of stuff, it's um it would just be very very nice to be at home with uh, people that I'm very close to.
0: Well, you mentioned cocktails, so maybe half of the answer to question 10 will be interesting. We'll see. Uh, hopefully, it's not a, bo- a bowl of peanuts is your answer to question 10. We'll find out. <laughs> we'll find out. Uh, question four is, who would be your favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Uh,
1: well, I've already mentioned Abado, who's yes. who's my absolute favourite, uh, who... Well, it was it was lucky enough to wrote several times. And I'm sure everyone mentions Carlos Kleiber. How can you not? His uh, elegant technique. Uh, um, Bernard Heiding, I love Bernstein's energy, uh, Carrianne's charisma. Um, those are my those are my main names.
0: Well, they're pretty unavoidable names from yesterday, aren't they? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And you're right, Carlos Kleiber features about every four episodes out of five or something like that. Yeah. Um uh, maybe I should have banned him as an answer, I don't know, but I, <laughs> I think what it proves to everybody is that, you know, if us conductors revere him as that much, he must have been that good. Um even though he, he demanded more rehearsal time than anybody else, the what his technique was just uh oh, it's yeah, it, it, yeah, you cannot spend any time in in the company of another conductor without mentioning his name. Um absolutely. I wonder whether you've got similar giants as your answer to number five, which has historically proven it slightly trickier to answer. Can you name your favorite current conductor or conductors?
1: Well I'm always really I I've only seen him once live. I'm all I'm really impressed with Klaus Meckler,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um who's still still pretty young. But um I saw him recently live for the first time in Paris and um it was really as good as was what you see on YouTube. Also, seems like a a great person. Um, also, technically, musically, orchestras. Everyone I've spoken to who's played under him is absolutely um, only overwhelmingly positive about him. And I watching YouTube or something. I'm extremely impressed. I think he's great. Orchestras sound fantastic, and um, technically looks wonderful. Um, yeah, Pavel Yevi. I like i a couple of times as well as Bassoonist um and um and Kirill Petrenko I've mentioned of course very well from commercial opera and Vladimir Yurovsky
0: yeah yeah well three names I think have appeared before I'm not sure Klaus Meckler has appeared before mainly because his rise to the top could only be described as meteoric um I met him uh. I was working in Yoensu in Karelia, near the Russian border in Finland with a orchestra. I worked there two or three times in two or three years. And his then girlfriend was, was the soloist. And he came along for the dinner after the concert and we got chatting mainly about watches and collecting watches, has to be said. But he said he was studying, conducting with the Orma Panela. Within 12 months, he was the boss of the Oslo. And of course, within 12 months of that, he was then, he got the, you know, a job in in Paris. And, you know, now, of course, there's the Concert And um, So, yeah, Meteoric Rise. Um, uh, and, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure he's appeared before. So, uh, good oh, gosh, choice, along really... with, you know, uh, Petrenko and, and the others. Very good choice. Mm-hmm. Number six is what is the hardest work you've ever conducted, or even hardest works you've ever conducted? Well,
1: there is one piece that does stick out, just... Um... In terms of a technical difficulty and and complexity, and that is a um, a realization of Stockhausen's plus minus. This um for for a a, just for a smallish ensemble of eleven players, which I did last year with a um um, a German ensemble ensemble at who were um interesting uh, um group um and they commissioned this. Realization from a composer called Ming Tao, who also lives in Germany, and it's this kind of 45 minute, um, uh, whatever 200 page just ridiculousness of virtually every bar being in a different, a different time signature and a different tempo, yeah. and incredibly difficult to play, really just technically difficult, just incredibly difficult to conduct, you know, just obviously through compose. And, um, and also, I, I was thinking the, the actual circumstances can make things difficult as well. I mean that was that was fine we had a lot of rehearsals but we were all just so far out of our comfort zones and uh, that was compounded by the fact that we were rehearsing in Stuttgart but our concert was in Barcelona and uh, Anselmo be- decided to be very um, climate friendly and we decided to go by train from Stuttgart to Barcelona. That's a it is a bit of a slip, yeah. yeah and um so we sort of arrived there at whatever, 5 p.m and we went straight into the rehearsal and everyone's in you know nerves were afraid the train had, was late and everything it wasn't the concert so it wasn't actually okay but you know we just kind of started off and the percussion hadn't kind of there were four percussionists and it was uh, half the stage was full of percussion and um and then it, as we sort of did the first three minutes and it sort of disintegrated and and the I the guitar player said, "It's far too fast." And the piano player said at the same time, "It's far too slow." <laughs> it, 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 it was just we were just it was just horrific. But actually, it was it was uh, fine in the end as these things are. Um, but really, a, a a huge challenge to conduct that piece. But then there've been other more um, more kind of <laughs> more funny um, instances humorous moments where you know at the at festival in Brazil I did Phi 5 um, with five one-hour rehearsals um, with students yeah who some of whom well, some of whom had never played in an orchestra before some of you a few of whom had never even had a lesson on their instrument wow um yeah so that was again this was one of these things like I'm not gonna stop whatever happens I mean at at you know at one at certain stages there were only you know four or five people playing and I was looking in the woodwind and doing a huge breath and showing them where to you know where to start and um we didn't stop but uh I think I aged about 20 years during that, <laughs> that mile of five and I, I remember bet. one of the old old rather uh rather strict old piano teacher lady coming up to me at the end who'd been listening and she said to me You survived. Marla did not.
0: (laughs) Very good. (laughs) And the thing was,
1: she was right. She was correct. But, um, yeah, I mean, those kind of things, ridiculous, so-called CLM, that's me, CLM specials, um, ridiculously difficult pieces, you know, without enough rehearsal or somewhere in in Brazil or Guatemala or something like that, um, which, um, you know, you just have to get through as best you can.
0: Yeah I'm going to go back to your Stockhausen uh, because many of my listeners I know are young conductors so we'll understand the difficulty of conducting a work where the time signature changes all of the time um, and dear listener if you're not conductor when it, when the time signature changes all the time you go from four beats in a bar to three beats in a bar to five quavers in a bar and then three minims in a bar that's that's a technical challenge, but if the tempo remains the same throughout, that it's just maths. When you're having to change the amount of beats per bar and the metronome mark changes in every bar, uh, the only piece I can think of equivalent to that that I've conducted quite on on three or four occasions is by Jorg Widmann called Con Brio, oh, where yeah. which is all based on sort of sort of meant to sound a little bit like Beethoven. But you might get four or five bars in a tempo, and then it changes, and then you've got two or three bars in a tempo, and then it changes again for four bars, and then it changes to another tempo, and then back to the original tempo. That's hard enough. When it's every single bar, pretty much, is a different metre and a different metronome mark, for 45 minutes, I mean, I could do it for five or 10, but for 45 minutes, my God, that's hard. Yeah, it was.
1: I was actually just looking at it and remembering the horror. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah it wasn't quite every bar of course I'm exaggerating but it was but every still, couple of bars yeah. really and and then it's you know it's got stuff like um the the three four bar is not in three you know it's in four because it's yeah
0: because yeah it's the,
1: the 13 16 <laughs> is four plus four plus five the three four is the change of tempo and it's in it the three four is in four dotted quavers that, that's yeah. that kind of thing yeah. just um yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, well, and yeah, you by the end of that. Challenge. Yeah, you you either want to go and get incredibly drunk very quickly, or sit in a dark room on on your own. The first one, the
1: first one.
0: Oh, good! I'd have done the first one as well. (laughs) (laughs) Number seven: When travelling abroad to conduct, and it sounds like you travel all over the world—South America, wherever—what item could you not leave home without? Well,
1: there are two items, just kind of the same. Item which I always take with me, and they have to say they're very cute, they're very slightly eccentric. So, I have these three cats, and I have here it's a little model of a cat. Yeah, um, it's a stone cat which I always take with me to remind me of my cats. And then, my husband made me this really wonderful, um, little I have it here as well because it's on my desk. Um, kind of a little what can you say? It's just a little collection of photos
0: and it's, it's a, almost like it's, it's of on a belt I'm just it's describing it yeah, yeah. To, to the listener yeah. it's like a belt kind of full of a, yeah full of little photos of, of yeah photos and, and things thing, to remind you of home
1: exactly yeah. and the first thing i do when i get to a new hotel room just um uh, sort of uh, make my little nest as you say and um i get out the get out the cat get out this little string of photos and put it you know on the desk where i'm going to Using my different coloured pencil to learn my scores, and it immediately, you know, it makes me feel like oh
0: that's wonderful. Oh,
1: oh, yeah, it's very, it's very, very sweet. Slightly eccentric, but very, very
0: sweet. It is, but it, but it, it, what it does is it means you 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 you've now made your home away from home, and that's Absolutely. important. You know, it I, is
1: and I do feel at home
0: there as well then yeah I do, I don't do anything like that but when I played I always had the photos in the in the the lid of my, yeah. my case uh so to remind me of home or at least my loved ones or was I'd left at home for however many you know days weeks we'd gone away. But I think it's important that, you know, you get somewhere and you immediately feel comfortable. And that's lovely. I I particularly like the stone cat. Very, very nice little, tiny little sculpture for my uh, listeners. Um, Very, very nice little thing. Um, But, yeah, I think that's great. Don't care if it's eccentric. It's great. No,
1: it is. It's wonderful. It's absolutely beautiful.
0: Thank you. Number eight is a real or fantasy question. Uh, And it is, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor?
1: Yeah, this is a, a an interesting one, a difficult one. So I have have given some thought to um, about being a conductor uh, itself. I, I mean, there's there's not much I would change if everything was going perfectly well. You know, it's um, people say, you know, what's your dream dream job? And it is my dream job. It's being yeah. a conductor. I mean, who's lucky enough to be able to do their dream job? It's really really fantastic. I mean, I love uh, I love traveling. I love meeting new people i love this incredible music that most of the time um that we get to do i mean I, of course i wouldn't change change any of that um in the wider wider world i'm very happy that things are changing in terms of diversity yes. and inclusivity it's it's great and long may it continue no, it shouldn't shouldn't change um be careful um but it shouldn't change too quickly you know um we need to to make sure that everything's still under control, but I'm very, very happy to see that how how quickly that is changing. It yes. shouldn't just it, well, it should to change for the sake of changing as well. But um, it's it's wonderful what is what is going on even in the last even since the pandemic. Yeah. How how things have changed, but especially in the last in the last ten years, um, how I think that, I mean, I'd love everyone every musician to think that um at least they could they would if if they wanted to or. Um, had to, Capacity in any way um, to be a conductor that they would at least have the chance to try, mm. um, and um, that's that's probably the thing that is changing and that mm. should keep that should keep changing, and um, that that we all, that all musicians know uh, what conductors do and what we're trying to do, mm. um, and um, that there's possibly more in, in some countries, especially in or some orchestras, more connection as well between the conductors and the and the orchestral players.
0: And I think that that connection has sort of happened a lot more since the pandemic. Um, I said maybe in one of the episodes after we all started going back and I first conducted, I conducted the CBSO the first time they came back after COVID. And Actually, after I'd conducted for a little while, I stopped the orchestra and said, you know what? If any conductor is rude to an orchestra again after after this COVID experience, when we could literally do nothing, we were sitting at home. We, could, we can't. We cannot survive without you. We cannot survive without orchestras. Um, if anybody's rude to them again or, or disrespectful again to an orchestra, they shouldn't be conducting because you know we, we spent months sitting at home thinking, well, what can we do now? what i ended up doing was for starting a podcast and interviewing other conductors about what we do um but yeah i i yeah i agree with you that i think the things that needed changing are changing uh and as you said we need to make sure that it happens at the right speed and not changing for change's sake but it, it it's it's all heading in the right direction i agree with you absolutely
1: yeah yeah and yeah. long may it continue
0: indeed whilst we're in real or fantasy worlds number 9 is what profession other than your own would you like to attempt or have liked to have attempted?
1: Yeah, I remember when I was even younger than when I started playing the bassoon, I always wanted to be an actress. And in a way, I still do. And I'm not gonna say that that has a lot to do with conducting, but um, at times there is a certain, there are some, there are parallels, of course, um, but I, I I think I'd have really enjoyed that in you know, school or maybe primary school even or middle school not you know, not, not I did I really enjoyed being school play and I, I maybe had a little um tendency to be slightly like, dramatic over dramatic at times um which and I think that would have been um something I would have really loved to try out um in uh, in later life.
0: Well, they say things come in threes. uh you are um the only i can't think of many other people who uh have said that but the, mark elder so you know you are a bassoonist who became a conductor who said he wanted to be an actor uh, the uh, answer to question oh, that's amazing so there we are uh we've got yeah we've got the the three the, the three answers or the three things in common with sir mark elder there we go uh, i remember him distinctly giving that answer and oh. I, I said it to the the guys in scotland and i've said it to other people who are conducting class here in birmingham there are times when you have to, you know, you should be yourself on the podium, but I think there are times you have to be more, you have to be somebody you're not to try and get what you want at times, and that that might mean telling a story or being more outrageous with how you beat or whatever it is and that's an element of acting I think you know that
1: absolutely you know, and there's it, a certain physicality about conducting and just the movement just the gestures yes. which has a such a, a strong connection I, I would like to think at least with acting you know and I was, say and I'm teaching it's this, this sign language which she uses in the universal human language which is the same as acting you know even without words.
0: Yeah, I'm uh, <laughs> sorry, I, I, you're the first person who's. I use that phrase all of the time when I teach, universal oh, body language, the, bo- the oh, language maybe. of, yeah, and yeah. because you can do a gesture as a conductor and it, it's, it, 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 it's totally recognisable what it means because we all know what it means, everybody on the Absolutely. planet knows what it means, and that's, yeah, exactly, yeah, finger to the lips or a, a, a hand, palm in front or whatever it is yeah. but it could even be something like the third beat of a bar could be like a wonderful backhand at tennis you know you, you know when you know when i've hit the ball therefore you know where that where that beat is um yeah
1: yeah, yeah. I, I, i've said exactly the same
0: and finally catherine if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink
1: yeah showing my english roots here i think i'd have to go for the famous fish and chips. Um really my favorite luxury uh meal, preferably in a cozy little English pub somewhere in the English countryside with, you know, maybe a nice pint of bitter or a good glass of wine. Um and uh, that would that would make me very happy. I remember once um having that very same meal um at eight thirty in the morning, in a pub in Germany, an Irish pub in Germany, one of the most wonderful moments during the two thousand and two, I think, World Football World Cup in Korea.
0: Yes. Um,
1: and where the games were really on early in the morning, and yes, uh, they were went 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 along to watch the um England against Brazil game. It was like eight thirty. England scored first. England were leading one nil. I was having fish and pit, chip, fish and chips and a pint of beer at eight thirty in the morning in an <laughs> Irish pub in Brayman, and I was like, this is pretty good. And then yeah. I had to go to a rehearsal of *Rosencavalier*, probably, um, and things changed. So, um, no, to go back to the, the thing, English fish and chips, that's got to be it.
0: Absolutely. And with a pint of bitter, and I've got to ask, are you going mushy peas as well? If they're good. If they I could, mean, I think
1: yeah. like, a lot of us, we were traumatised by mushy peas at school. Yes. So they were pretty grim. So if they're anything like the school peas, then I'd give them a miss. But I think there are some quite nice sort of gourmet standard mushy peas now, um, yeah. which I would, you know, they don't, uh, they're not, uh, they're not necessary, but no. I wouldn't leave them.
0: <laughs> well, it's a brilliant choice. It's a very, very, very British choice. I love the, the fact that it can. It's with a pint of beer. Uh, and oh, yeah. to be up eating and drinking that at eight thirty morning—that is living the dream, isn't it? Uh, sadly, it's for those who for sadly for those who don't know what happened in the football result, we lost two one to a freak goal by Ronaldo. I um, know by Ronaldinho, uh, and we were knocked well, out the World Cup. So the the day did not end well. But today has ended well for me because it's nearing tea time and I've had a wonderful hour and a half chatting to you Catherine thank you so much for coming on the podcast and I hope one day soon we can meet up uh, fish and chips hopefully at the same time and carry on chatting again thank you
1: yeah thank you so much Mike it's been an absolute pleasure
0: A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson Next time, I chat with a conductor who was born in Bulgaria, but has spent most of his life living in Italy and Germany. Originally a pianist, he switched to conducting, studying with Gen Luigi Gelmetti and Jorma Panola, and is probably best known for being the founder of the orchestra he still conducts today, the Mannheim Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra. But until then, bye-bye.